You're listening to a sermon preached at Chael English Ministry in Sydney. We believe that God speaks through His Word, the Bible. We pray that as you listen, you will hear God's voice and be moved to worship His Son, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our gracious God and our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, our wonderful Lord and our kind and gracious Saviour. We pray that as we reflect on these words from your mouth about your son, that you would help us to understand what you are saying to us through the Bible. Please help us to understand all the more who Jesus is and what he has done. Please fill us, Lord, with joy and peace as we reflect on who he is and what he has done for us. For it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen. There are some things that I can do. There are some things that I can manage myself. Some things that I can do for myself. I can, after much practice, tie my own shoelaces. For example, uh, I am able to warm up leftovers in the microwave. I can now put my dirty clothes into the washing basket. I've made great progress in life, as you can see. Um, I've also taught myself how to drive a manual car. I can write sermons. I can do a few things in life, but there are things that I can't do. There are some things that I simply cannot manage myself. For example, I can't do jigsaw puzzles. Shout out Alice, I'm not like her. I can't do jigsaw puzzles. 10 years ago, uh, when I used to run a kids club back in Maryland, I was playing with one of our six-year-olds and she used to insist that we do jigsaw puzzles together. She's six. Uh, So she brought out a kindy level jigsaw puzzle, uh, but very sadly, she walked away because she realized that I'm completely useless and I can't help her. She was discouraged, but she didn't have the words to show it at the time. I realized I couldn't help her with the jigsaw puzzle. It had like eight pieces. I couldn't help her with this puzzle. In addition, I can't do Sudoku. You know that number thing in a box? I can't do it. Anything more than the most basic level Sudoku with all these little squares and the numbers, I just can't do it. My brain just melts. I have no answers. I've got no idea. In addition, I can't cook for the life of me. Anything more than boiling water, maybe frying an egg, I can't do it. I'm just hopeless in the kitchen. In addition, I can't fix anything around the house. I can't fix anything to do with a car. There are lots and lots of things I cannot do, friends. And one thing that definitely falls into that category of things that I cannot do is trying to be an obedient son of God. I can't do it. Trying to live the way that God wants me to live, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I've tried and I can't. Friends, you'll agree with me that that is actually a big problem. That's a huge problem. Because do you remember last week? Do you remember last week we met John the Baptist? Do you remember what his message was for God's people? Do you remember what he said? He said, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what he said. So he said, repent because God's kingdom is near. God is ready to reestablish his kingdom for his people. 
God is ready to invite his people home from exile, but in response, they need to repent. They need to repent. They need to be, do you remember, like my friend's son, Rob? They need to be changed men, changed women. They need to be people that want to live in God's kingdom where God is the king. Do you remember, though, John didn't just say it with his words. He actually gave the people a vivid demonstration. Do you remember what it was? He gave them a vivid demonstration. He called them to come outside the promised land to him, that's John, and there what they would do is they would confess all the ways that they hadn't lived God's way, that they hadn't lived properly in God's kingdom, the way they haven't lived as God's children. And then they would come back through the sea and they would come back out. And then what John did was he would bring them back through the river into the land. It was a reenactment of the time that Israel originally came home into the land from exile. It was a reenactment. We call it baptism. So John gave these people a reenactment. You go through the Jordan River, you go into the land, and now as you go into the land, you've recommitted yourself to living God's way and waiting for his kingdom. They recommitted themselves to be changed women, changed men. So this baptism of John that we saw last week, it was a vivid demonstration. It was someone saying, I want to be God's son. I want to be God's person in the land, in the kingdom, out of exile, living God's way. The problem is, like I said, I can't do it. I simply cannot live up to it. Let me ask you, have you ever tried being an obedient child of God? Seriously. Have you ever tried to stop sinning? I'm serious. Have you ever tried to not sin, to not disobey God's word with your life? Seriously, though, try. Have a go. Try. Like, set yourself a goal, for example, and say in your mind, one week, just one week, I will not sin. Just one week in my life, I will not sin. No lies, no acting out in anger, no malice, no resentment, no lustful thoughts or lustful actions, no envy, no selfishness, no greed, no worldliness, no pride at how well you're doing. Instead, wholeheartedly loving God, loving your neighbor as yourself, filled with love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Have you ever tried? Forget a week. Have you ever tried for a day? It's not possible. Seriously, it's a fact. It's simply not possible. It's not even remotely possible. You can repent as hard as you want, but people like you and me, we cannot live as obedient children of God. That is bad news. God is establishing his kingdom. What does he say? The kingdom of God has come near. God demands that we be the kind of changed men and women who will be his sons, his daughters in his kingdom who will be his obedient subjects in his kingdom. But we can't do it. 
Well, in this next session of Matthew's gospel, we meet Jesus again. Now, fast forward in time, he's all grown up. And in this first scene, the adult Jesus comes to be baptized by John. He comes to declare his intention to live as God's son in God's kingdom, living God's way. But for Jesus, it's a very different thing. So everyone else, when they came to God, they confessed their sins, all the ways that they needed to be changed, all the ways they needed to change their life, but not Jesus. In fact, John says, Jesus, you ought to be baptizing me, not the other way around. John wants this Holy Spirit and fire baptism that Jesus is going to bring. But Jesus says, no, no, not yet. Not yet, John. He says, now is the time for me to identify as God's son. Now is the time for me to declare my intention to live his way in his kingdom. It's right and proper for me to do this now. Look with me in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. So what do we see? Jesus has declared his intention. He wants to be God's son. And at this point, God speaks. This is something entirely unique. This doesn't happen many times in the Bible. God audibly speaks. And God says to Jesus, you are. That's what he says. You are my son. And you do live my way. I love you. And I am delighted in you. I am very pleased with you. Look with me at verse 16 and 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All right, church, can you see how it's worked? Can you see what's happened here? John has declared, I want to be God's son. God has declared, you are my son. The thing about what God says here, the thing about what God says and does here, I need to say this, it's chock-a-block full of Old Testament illusions. There's so much Old Testament illusion in what's going on here. The most important Old Testament illusion is the idea of God's son being Israel, the nation Israel. That's the most important illusion that we see in our passage. God is declaring Jesus right here to be the better Israel. God is declaring Jesus to be Israel, his true and genuine son. There's a few Old Testament illusions that I want to point you to. The first one is from Exodus, showing that God's son is Israel. So Exodus chapter 4, look with me, it's on the screens. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, 23. So here's in this first illusion, God's talking to Moses and he says, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. So when God says, this is my son, he's saying, this is an Israelite. This is a true person of God in my kingdom. It's very similar to, do you remember, a couple of weeks ago, back in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, do you remember when Joseph took Jesus into Egypt? Remember that? 
And Matthew said back then that that was the fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, right? Quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, who's the son? It's Israel. It's Israel. So God is declaring Jesus to be his son, Israel, a true Israelite, a true person among God's people living in God's kingdom. But there are some other uh, Old Testament allusions here as well. I don't have time to investigate the passage in great detail. I hope you had a thoughtful read throughout the week. Uh, but in the Old Testament, just a couple more things, God also declares that the Messiah is his son, the king. The king that will rule all the nations. Look with me at this passage from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, it's on the, it's on the screen, Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. God says to the Messiah, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and just keep this in mind uh, when you see what Satan offers Jesus later on, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The Messiah is God's son. Also in the Old Testament, God talks about this faithful servant, this servant in whom God delights, in whom he is well pleased. And he says about this servant, I'm going to put my spirit on him, this servant, just as he's done with Jesus, as we've seen in our text now. Look with me at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, it's on the screens, verse 1. This is what it says. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And then, as you work through the book of Isaiah, you find out that this servant is incredibly significant, and you find out that this servant is going to suffer. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him, this servant, the iniquity of us all. Just one more illusion here while we're on this. It goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God said to Abraham, God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Like I said, this declaration, this theophany, if you like, that we see at Jesus' baptism, it's chock-a-block full of Old Testament illusions. And when you put all the illusions together, you get a fascinating picture of who Jesus is and what he's actually come to do. What do we see? Well, according to the Old Testament illusions, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the true representative person of God. In addition, we see that Jesus is the king. The king in the line of David, the Messiah, the Messianic king. In addition, we see that this is God's beloved son. He's also a servant, a servant that's going to suffer. The point for us, though, the point is this. God has responded to Jesus' declaration. Jesus has declared his intention. I want to be God's obedient son. God has declared his response. You are my son. I love you and I'm delighted in you. But now, but now it's time to test all of this out. You gotta test it. You see, friends, it's all well and good to make a declaration of intention, like a New Year's resolution or something. It's all well and good to make a declaration, I will love you for the rest of my life. You say that to your spouse. The real test is, will you do it? It's very easy to make a declaration, uh, I will 
pray more, maybe. I will eat less. I will stop yelling at the children. I will give up smoking or whatever it might be. The thing is, declarations don't usually count for much. You've got to prove it. You've got, you got to test it out. A great example of this, I read this. Uh, Sir Neville Chamberlain uh, was a prime minister of the United Kingdom back in the 1930s. And a great example of this is uh, Neville Chamberlain's famous declaration in 1939 when he signed a document with a man called Adolf Hitler, and, the, and he said this, this declaration indicates that the intention of our two nations is to live at peace with each other and begin an age of peace. And within 12 months, he declared war on Germany and World War II began. What's my point? Declarations don't count for much. You've got to do what you've said. You've got to do what you've promised. You can declare something all you want. But if you don't do what you don't actually declare, then it doesn't count for anything. Jesus has declared his intention. I will live as an obedient son of God, a faithful son of God. God has responded, you are my faithful son. But now it's put to the test. Now again, the key to understanding this section is to know your Old Testament. I hope you're reading your Old Testament throughout the weeks, but what happens here, it's meant to be a parallel, okay? What happens here with Jesus, it's meant to parallel what happened in the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. There's a strong connection, you can't miss it. At a special time, way back in the time of Moses, after Israel had been rescued out of Egypt, when they were on their way to the promised land, when they were in the wilderness, the desert, wandering around, that's what it was, that's the connection back there. So here in Matthew, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by the devil, to be tested by Satan himself. God's son Jesus, we read, is in the desert now for 40 days, just like God's son Israel was in the desert for 40 years. There's a strong connection. And just like Israel in the desert in the Old Testament, we see that Jesus here is without food. Look with me in your Bibles at chapter 4, Matthew, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1 and 2. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, as you would be. Now, when God's son Israel was in the wilderness and went without food, we saw what happened. Did you notice that in our first reading? It got pretty ugly, right? It got pretty cringy, pretty ugly. What did they do? Well, they didn't exactly act like a trusting, obedient child of God. No, no, instead, they whinged. Complain, complain, complain. They grumbled, they complained, they whinged. They said stupid things like, it was so much better back in Egypt. Things like, do you hate us, God? Are you even there? They whinged and grumbled until God finally fed them with this manna, this manna from heaven. Later on, at the end of those 40 years, just before Israel was about to come into the promised land, Moses actually preached a very long sermon, or actually a couple of sermons, which we have recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. And there, in the book of Deuteronomy, God spoke about the lesson that he wanted Israel to learn. The lesson that he wanted Israel to learn from their failure to trust in him in the wilderness, when they didn't have food, there was a lesson. Now, I want to look at this passage with you from Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I want you to see if you can see what the lesson is. They couldn't really get it. 
Let's see if you can get it. Let's see if you can get what the lesson is. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two and three. Follow along with me, it's on the screens. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Can you see the lesson they needed to learn? It's right there. This is the lesson. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You've got to stop and think about that, right? That's, it's got to be a bit of a strange lesson, to be honest, right? What do you reckon it means? Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You can't, you can't eat the words that come from God's mouth, can you? It's not like rice or bread. So it's not an exact parallel, and we know that if you go without bread for too long, you'll die. You'll starve to death. What's it saying? What's God saying with this lesson? I think what God's trying to say in his lesson is this. He's trying to say, your real life, your true life does not come to you from bread. Your real life, your true life, it comes to you only from God. And that means obeying the words that come from his mouth is more important to you than food. That's the lesson. Obeying the words that come from God's mouth is more important to you than life itself because he alone can give you true life, genuine life, eternal life, joyful life. Obeying God's word is more important than everything else in your life. You want to be a true and faithful son of God? Then you've got to show obedience to God's word above everything else. And we know, of course, that Israel, they never really got that. They never really learned that lesson. You would think 40 years is long enough to teach your lesson. Apparently not. Israel, they kind of failed this lesson. But let's see how Jesus does. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 and, verse three and 4. Remember, 40 days, Jesus is starving. He's crazy hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Stop right there. Can you see that Jesus has learned Israel's lesson? Can you see that? Can you see that Jesus has succeeded where Israel has failed? Jesus is the true and obedient son of God who will trust and obey God even to death. Just as a little aside, um, it's not only Israel who failed when the devil tempted them to eat some food, is it? I wonder if you can think of another time that's happened. Another time when people failed when Satan tempted them about some food. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? There's connections here. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, right? Anyway, the point here is Jesus passes the test. He is the trusting and the obedient son of God. But Satan's not finished yet because back when Israel were in the wilderness, they were also without water for a while. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 17. But do you remember how they went that time, Israel, in the Old Testament? 
Well, it got pretty ugly again. It got very ugly. Israel were in a place called Massa, Massa, where they quarreled with Moses. And they said things like, is the Lord among us or not? Like, is he with us or not with us? If he's really here, if he's really God, if he really does love us, then he'll give us water. They said stupid things like, he should prove himself and give us what we need. Now, at that time, God did give Israel water. But he wasn't happy about it. He wasn't happy about it. He didn't like the way Israel were putting him to the desk. He didn't like the way Israel cornered him. He didn't like the way that they forced his hand and they kind of made him give him the water. So uh, later on in the book of Deuteronomy, as they're about to enter the land, God talks about it and he says to them, Israel, listen, I don't want you to do that again. I don't want you to show me that kind of disrespect again. Look with me at this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. This is what God said. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. Israel must never test God. They must never try and force God's hand. No, no. The obedient child of God lets God be God and they know their place as God's child. The obedient child of God, their role is to humbly trust and obey. That's their job, trust and obey. And again, it's a lesson that Israel never really learned. But let's see how Jesus goes. Look with me at Matthew chapter four, verse five to seven. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. I think this is in a vision. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Friends, once again, can you see? Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Jesus won't test God. He won't force God to act. What does this show? It shows that Jesus is the true, trusting, obedient son of God. Jesus is the ultimate Israel. But even now, the devil isn't finished. Because when Israel were in the wilderness in the Old Testament, when they found it difficult to worship God, they turned to other things, right? We read that in history. At one stage, when Moses, their leader, was gone, again, for 40 days and 40 nights, they even made an idol. Do you remember? They made a calf out of gold, and they bowed down to it. They worshipped a golden calf. But as they were coming into the land, in the book of Deuteronomy, God said, no way. No way. No, no, no. I want your wholehearted love. I want your full allegiance. No idols. No idols. In Deuteronomy, God said this, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Verse 13, fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. God's son needs to trust and rely and obey God alone. God's son must never worship anyone or anything else. Again, it's a lesson that Israel never really learned. Let's see how Jesus goes. Matthew chapter four, verse eight to 10. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so once again, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Jesus shows himself to be the true, trusting, obedient son of God. And for now, Satan is defeated. Look with me at verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. Then the devil left him. The angels came and attended him. All right. Can you see what this passage is all about? Can you see what's here? In his baptism... He declares his intention to live as God's son. God responds with his declaration. You are my son. I love you. And then in temptation after temptation after temptation, Jesus proves it. He proves it. For Jesus, obeying God's word is more important than his life. Did you catch that? Jesus won't test God. Jesus won't worship anything, anyone other than God. The devil has thrown everything at Jesus. He's thrown the kitchen sink at Jesus. But unlike Israel, Jesus has passed the test. He really is God's son, whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. Do you see what this is saying? Friends, I can't begin to tell you how incredibly significant this is. I can't begin to tell you just how much this matters. This, what we've read today, is so, so, so important because you and I, we cannot do it ourselves. We simply can't do it. You and I, we cannot live as God's obedient, trusting children. We can't do it. It's not possible, I don't care what you say. Now look, if that was me in that desert, I would have failed so miserably. Just give it a few seconds, I would have failed. Forget 40 days. After two days, all those stones, watermelon cake, I'm telling you. Forget a week, within a couple of minutes, I'd be forcing God to act. Get me out of here, God. Do you really love me? Are you really there? Do you care about me? Are you even real? I'd be saying stupid things like that. 40 days, no way. If that was me there in, in the desert, to be honest with you, I would have been bowing down to Satan every other day. Yeah, give me those kingdoms. I want them. I want that money. I want that kingdom. Give me that kingdom. Also, give me some food while you're at it too. That would be me in the wilderness. I am just like Adam. I am just like Israel. I am just like Oscar Wilde. It was Oscar Wilde who said, I can resist anything except temptation. I am a sinful person. I am not a trusting and obedient son of God. And that means that on my own merit, I have no place in God's kingdom. Did you catch that? On my own merit, I have no place in God's eternal kingdom. That is really, really bad news. Because do you remember what John the Baptist said last week was an alternative? What did he say? Cut down, thrown into the fire. And friends, you know what? 
I know that you're the same as me. The Bible is crystal clear about it. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single person breathing right now, all of us, we don't trust God. On our own merit, we have no place in God's kingdom and friends. That is why the sinlessness of Jesus is so critical. That is why it's such good news that Jesus resisted temptation and lived as God's trusting and obedient son, just like we've seen today. If Jesus was a simple, sinful person like us, he would be useless to us, to be honest. He would be no good to us. But friends, Jesus did not sin. Jesus resisted temptation. Jesus is God's son whom he loves, with whom he is well pleased. And so he is in a position to help us. He is in a position to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So I want to finish today by just quickly showing you from the New Testament three ways that a sinless Jesus can help us. In one sense, it's probably stuff that you know already, but I reckon with this background of Matthew in mind, I think it'll enrich that for us. I think it'll throw color onto this black and white image that we have three ways that the sinless Jesus can really help us. First, the fact that Jesus never sinned, it means that he didn't deserve to die. He didn't deserve to die and face God's judgment. Why? The wages of sin is death. But Jesus had no sin. He didn't deserve to die. He had no sin of his own to die for, and therefore he is in a position to die for our sin, for your sin, my sin. He is in a position to be a sacrifice for us. If Jesus is a sinner, he has to die, and he can't be a sacrifice for anyone because he's dying for his own sins. He's paying the price for his own sins. Jesus is the one who has never sinned and therefore can be a sacrifice for us. Look with me at what Peter says, 1 Peter 1 on the screens, verse 18, 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is that lamb without blemish, without defect, with no sin of his own, and therefore able to die for you and me and our sin. Friends, isn't that crazy good news? Doesn't that give you assurance? This is good news. That's the first reason. Second, the fact that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin, it qualifies him to be a mediator between us and God. It works at both levels. So on the one hand, Jesus is tempted in every way, just as we are. Satan has thrown the kitchen sink at Jesus. We saw that. You know what that means? It means that he knows what it means to be tempted. What that means for you, struggler, Jesus knows what you go through. He knows and he feels everything that you go through. He knows. That's why he can sympathize with us. That's why he can be sympathetic to our weaknesses. Friend, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how wicked you have been. It doesn't matter how stupid you have been. Jesus is not going to be shocked by it. He's not surprised. 
He's been there. He has felt that temptation that you're struggling with right now. He has felt that temptation, and that's why he can sympathize. But on the other hand, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned, and so therefore, he is qualified to be in the presence of God. You and me were disqualified. Jesus is qualified to be in the presence of God. That's why Jesus can stand between God and us like an Old Testament priest, and that's why he can mediate between God and us. The beautiful thing about Jesus is he represents us before God, and he represents God before us. It's crazy when you think about it. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, because it's his merit that we're coming with, not ours. And so now, through Jesus, the Jesus who knows and loves and sympathizes with us, this Jesus who is right with God, who has never sinned, through this Jesus, we can come into the presence of God with confidence. We can't stand before God with our head held high. Why? Because of his sinlessness. Because he's our mediator. Look with me at this passage, Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. My sister in Christ, my brother in Christ, we can pray because Jesus was without sin. We can be in the presence of God now and in the new heaven and earth, why? Because Jesus was without sin. That's good news, that's great news. Third, one final New Testament implication. Jesus is without sin And by God's grace, he's arranged this amazing, wonderful transaction where Jesus can actually give us his sinlessness. Now, theologically, this is called imputation. God imputes us with the sinlessness of Christ. Let me show you how it works. When we rely on Jesus, there's like a swap that happens. There's this exchange that takes place. When we rely upon Jesus for the very first time in our lives, he gives us his righteousness before God, his right standing before God. He swaps our failure for his success. He swaps our faithlessness for his faithfulness. He swaps our flawed sonship for his perfect sonship. There's a swap that happens. And so now, through Jesus, we become God's obedient children with whom he's pleased with, with whom he loves. We become that. Child of God. Look with me at what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians. Notice the swap over that happens. Notice the exchange. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, critically, to be sin for us on the cross, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Can you see the exchange there? Here's the catch. This couldn't happen if Jesus was a sinner. It can happen because he is without sin, church. This news could not be any better 
There's nothing more important in your life than this news. Jesus is the faithful, obedient son of God, tempted in every way just as we are, and yet was without sin. And so Jesus can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He can be our sacrifice. He can be our mediator. He can take our sin and give us his sinlessness before God, his purity. Jesus can open up the kingdom of heaven for us, friends. Can you see how incredibly, wonderfully important this is? It can't get more important than this. This is eternity fixed for us. But we've got to get it clear. We can't do it ourselves. We've got to get it clear. We are the failures. We're Israel. We're Adam. We cannot be God's trusting, obedient children. We cannot get ourselves into God's kingdom. Don't ever try, will you? You will not succeed. You cannot get yourself into God's kingdom. But friends, in Jesus, we have a sinless Savior. And so, with great gratitude and joy, let's throw ourselves on him. Let's rely on Jesus, our sinless Savior. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you for the magnificent Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you for Jesus who was tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin. We thank you for the way that he showed himself to be a faithful son of God, always trusting you, always obedient to your word. And we thank you, Lord, for your magnificent mercy in allowing us, broken sinners, to share in his righteousness. Thank you, Lord, that he lived the life we should have lived. Thank you that he died the death that we deserve to die and that he is now alive again and willing to be our sacrifice, our mediator, our righteousness. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Help us to rely on him alone now and for the rest of our lives. For we ask these things in the strong and sinless name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.